Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Episode 6, Let's Dance. It was early November, 1837, when a plainly dressed man from Upper Canada, Jesse Lloyd, arrived in Montreal with a plan to seek out the leader of the radical paramilitary group, the Sons of Liberty. Lloyd had scraggly long hair and a mouth mostly empty of teeth, except one that stuck out when he smiled. But Lloyd wasn't here to win any beauty contests. His friend, William Lyon Mackenzie, had sent him on a mission of political intrigue. Back in Upper Canada, William Lyon Mackenzie was determined that all other options for reform had been erased from the menu. The only remaining meal to order was rebellion. The trick for Mackenzie was that his reformer colleagues weren't nearly as convinced that the options were so few, and he needed to convince them. That was Lloyd's job, to visit the Patriot in Lower Canada, where it really did seem like reformers were about to take up arms. Lloyd arrived in Montreal at a tense moment in early November 1837. The Doric Club had just demanded that the Sons of Liberty not be allowed to march on the streets. The leader of the Sons, Thomas Storo Brown, was insisting that the march for that Monday go ahead. And on this weekend, just ahead of when the street brawl between the Sons of Liberty and the Doric Club was about to take place, the one we talked about last day, Brown took some time out of his planning to meet with the messenger from Upper Canada. Thomas Storo Brown was the son of a loyalist, but by the mid-1830s, Brown he had become one of those devout English-speaking patriots that so infuriated the English press. Brown contributed to the Vindicator newspaper under a pseudonym, and when it came to tough action, the 34-year-old Brown was clearly up for it. Even as he was insisting to authorities that the Sons of Liberty would peacefully meet on the Monday, he was also that weekend meeting with Jesse Lloyd to talk about what plans, if any, there were for a rebellion in Upper Canada and Lower Canada. It's unclear exactly what the two of them said to each other, but Lloyd went back to Upper Canada and to Mackenzie with a letter from Brown that Lloyd and Mackenzie both said was a secret message. They claimed that it meant the Lower Canadians were ready for action, but they wanted the Upper Canadians to strike first and act as a diversion. The letter, in plain print, said no such thing. But that didn't stop Lloyd or Mackenzie from claiming that it was a kind of code. Mackenzie would use the letter to push his fellow Upper Canadian reformers into action. The rebellions in Upper Canada and Lower Canada took place separately, but this meeting in early November showed that each side knew and wanted to know what the other was doing. Their goals might not have been identical, but in both colonies, reformers had, by November of 1837, transformed themselves into rebels. The question was whether they could overthrow constituted authority and turn their rebellion into revolution, installing a new order of their own making. So far in this series, we've tried to figure out why reformers in Lower and Upper Canada took up muskets and pitchforks and attempted to overthrow the government. 
It had a lot to do with Republican ideas about democracy, unhappiness with the system of government and its control by a small elite, and in Lower Canada, a liberal ethnic nationalism that railed against domination by what many patriots saw as a foreign power. And we've been watching as a series of events unfolded in both colonies that immediately precipitated the rebellions. The new governor head in Upper Canada briefly tried to bring reformers into government only to balk at their demands and then turn about face. Governor Head dissolved Parliament and essentially made himself the leader of a loyalist political party and won a triumphant victory in the elections for the Assembly in 1836. The dispirited reformers licked their wounds, and it also seems that some, especially William Lyon Mackenzie, decided that if elections didn't work, they would have to resort to more radical measures. In Lower Canada, the Patriot pushed their agenda through the 92 resolutions, demanding constitutional change, and then using their dominance of the Assembly to effectively shut down government. The new Governor-General had almost succeeded in winning over enough converts to find a compromise, but he failed. And then, the response from the British government to Patriot demands arrived in the spring of 1837, the Russell Resolutions saying no to constitutional change. The Patriot interpreted this as a slap in the face. That's what turned the summer of 1837 into a season of action, calls for a boycott of British goods, meetings and then more meetings with declarations decrying the British and suggesting that something, something would have to be done. Gangs of Patriot supporters around the colony took to the roads and fields at night to force their fellow Lower Canadians to side with them. If you didn't agree, or if you were a known supporter of the government, you were apt to be visited in the night by the Sharavari, with shouts and bangs and threats. A lot of horses lost their tails that summer and autumn. It was time to take sides. When street gangs clashed in Montreal in early November, just at the time Jesse Lloyd was visiting the city from Upper Canada, the ever-conciliatory governor, Lord Gosford, finally gave in to those demanding he give a sterner response. Things had gone too far for gestures of goodwill and bargaining. If politics wouldn't work, then it would have to be politics by other means, that is, war. For the moment, we'll let Jesse Lloyd head back to Upper Canada and leave that story aside for a time. For today and next week, we're sticking with Lower Canada, for it was here that the action began. To stop a rebellion, you need to cut off its head. And so, on November 16th, Lord Gosford ordered the arrest of Patriot leaders. If they were parading the colony at agitation meetings, calling for disruption of order and proposing to install a separate revolutionary government, he felt it was time to put a stop to it. But the Patriot had spies all through the government and the Patriot learned of the plan. In haste, the men who faced arrest rushed from their homes, fleeing Montreal just ahead of the constables. Thomas Storrow Brown, still reeling from his head wound, dragged himself out of bed and escaped the city, 
so did Louis-Joseph Papineau, allegedly dressing in disguise so as to go unnoticed. Just south of Montreal, Papineau and several other patriotes met to discuss what actions they should take. The arrest warrants had been a surprise. The patriotes had hoped to delay their own action until later in the season. They needed the colder weather and the frozen rivers to impede the movement of British troops by water from other colonies and within the colony. So now the patriot had to decide what to do, to move forward or to delay. The patriot leaders were in disarray in their flight, but they decided that they would move ahead with a general convention in Saint-Denis in the Richelieu Valley on the December 4th. Papineau and several others headed directly to the Richelieu Valley to organize themselves for war and for the convention. Other leaders went south. Conflict with the British was going to take more than just determination. They needed arms and ammunition. And the best place to get this was the United States where they hoped they could also find friends. American friends eager to displace the British from their hold on North America. Even as Papineau and the Patriot were setting their plans into motion, the government's bailiffs were trying to arrest any other Patriot leaders they could find. The government had evicted the more militant magistrates from their posts and then ordered the arrest of those Patriot leaders who had taken part in the huge meetings at St. Charles or who were leaders of the Sons of Liberty. Although many escaped, the bailiffs did manage to track down a few and the attempt to arrest others led to the Patriot's first real victory of the rebellion. A small troop of cavalry accompanied a bailiff south of Montreal to capture two Patriot leaders, and they somehow managed to find the wanted men. But they also discovered that getting their captives back to Montreal was going to prove more difficult. Patriot supporters learned what was happening and rushed to the ferry crossing at Long Eye that the troops would have to use to get back to Montreal. A large group of Patriot waited in ambush at the crossing. When the bailiff and cavalry arrived with their prisoners, the ambush began. Shots rang out and musket balls rained down on the troops. The Patriots shot a number of horses out from under their men and three cavalrymen were hit. One of those wounded was John Molson of the Brewing family fame. A shot was said to go right through his hat, grazing his head along the way. The Patriot got the better of the exchange. In the chaos, the prisoners escaped, and the bailiff and the cavalry fled for their lives, while the gleeful local Patriot took the prisoners to a local blacksmith to remove their chains. It was an early and morale-boosting victory for the Patriot. Thomas Storrow Brown heard the news that night while he was in hiding, fleeing from his own arrest. The Sons of Liberty chief was elated. The music has started, he said, so let's dance. In the meantime, Papineau and other patriot had headed to the Richelieu Valley. There, they set up armed camps to defend themselves against British attack and to plan for the general convention on December 4th. Papineau busied himself mostly with the political elements. He prepared a declaration of independence that was to be ratified at the convention. But other patriot took charge of trying to figure out how to turn radical thoughts into practical action. 
in the village of St. Charles, which was to be the Patriot's main camp, they took over the manor of the local seigneur, Pierre-Dominique Desbarches. Desbarches had, until only recently, been a Patriot supporter, but as the party had moved closer and closer to radical action, he held back and accepted the compromise offered by Lord Gosford. The Patriot took over his solid stone manor home and his stores. The local Patriots kept Debarch and his family captive initially, only to eventually set them free when Debarch agreed to sign a letter saying he wouldn't work against the Patriots. It was a civilized form of rebellion, if ever there was one. But it didn't save Debarch's pigs, which were slaughtered, nor his wine and beer, which the Patriot happily drank. Patriot supporters were streaming into St. Charles to join the cause, and they needed to eat and drink. Here, and also downriver at the village at Saint-Denis, the Patriot began building defensive fortifications, and some even started to give St. Charles a new name, Papineauville. In Montreal, General Colborne took the lead now, while Gosford took a back seat. Over the fall, Colborne had set up a system of spies across the colony, often paying for information about just what the Patriot were planning. The month before, he had already sent out one of his officers to the Richelieu Valley to reconnoiter the area. If this was a Patriot strong point, it paid to be prepared. At the same time, the governor authorized the creation of a loyalist militia. The year before, Gosford hadn't wanted the English party organizing a paramilitary group. At that point, he was still trying to show his conciliatory credentials. But now that rebellion had arrived, there was a role to play for civilians, and especially for the English party. Gosford gave the leadership of the militia to a prominent French-Canadian. It was an attempt to show a cross-ethnic solidarity of loyalty against the uprising. But in reality, many members of the militia came from the Doric Club, the semi-secret fraternal order that clashed with the Sons of Liberty in early November. General Colborne had also been steadily building up the number of troops in the colony, calling them in from the Maritimes and Upper Canada. In late October, Colborne had convinced the Upper Canadian Governor Head to send all of the regular garrison from that colony to Lower Canada. Head claimed that he would happily send away the troops and put his safety in the hands of the loyal local militia in Upper Canada. And with that decision, the troops left for Lower Canada at the end of the month. This decision by Head to denude the upper province of regular troops played no small part in the thinking of Mackenzie in that colony. But let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. In Lower Canada, Colborne learned that Papineau and other Patriots had set up armed camps in the Richelieu Valley. Still worried about whether other parts of the colony could also erupt in violence, he decided that the best move was to act early, to cut off the rebellion before it had truly time to get organized. And so Colborne set in motion his attack on the Patriot in the Richelieu Valley. It was supposed to be a surprise. Colborne did not even give advance warning to the governor. The attack was to be a pincer movement, with two forces attacking the Patriot in the Richelieu Valley from different directions, catching the Patriot from both sides, squeezing them in the middle. One force was to come along the river from below, from the south. 
This group was led by Lieutenant Colonel George Weatherall. Another group was to leave silently by boat from Montreal and head up the St. Lawrence River to the town of Sorrel, where the Richelieu River emptied out into the St. Lawrence. These troops, under the command of Sir Charles Gore, were to debark at Sorel and then head down to attack the Patriot from the north. Gore from the north and Weatherall from the south. The two forces were meant to arrive at roughly the same time. And, of course, it all went wrong almost from the start. In the south, Weatherall's force numbered about 350 men, and they'd been waiting at a fort further up the Richelieu River for several days. All they needed were orders from Colborne to head out. But this was November in Canada. It had been raining for several days straight, and the ground was sodden and muddy. It was going to be an incredible chore to move anything, especially the heavy cannon that they would be taking with them. Colborne's message arrived in the early evening of November 22nd. The troops were to leave that night, heading straight for the Patriot encampment at St. Charles and attacking with all possible haste. That was the hope, anyway. In reality, the weather was so bad that it took them hours just to cross the swollen river from the fort to the other side. Weatherall's troops then spent the whole night slogging through the mud, making almost no headway. Early the next day, having marched all night, they arrived at the town of Saint-Hilaire, still about 10 kilometers from where they were supposed to be, and now utterly exhausted. A local militia officer was happy to see the troops and offered them the use of his buildings and supplies. So, although they were supposed to be hastening on, Weatherall decided it would be best, given the state of his troops, to get the rest they needed. Good for his troops, no doubt, but it also meant that the other force, under Gore's command, the top portion of this pincer movement, would be left on its own. Gore had started out well. The troops had departed from Montreal later in the afternoon on the 22nd, arriving downriver at Sorel and debarking there in the evening. Next, it was the overnight march upriver to catch the Patriot by surprise. But this didn't happen. When Gord landed at Sorel, he learned that the Patriot were gathering in a nearby village. Hoping to escape attention, he led his men along a back road. Ah, the mistake of the back road shortcut. We all know it. But when you're traveling in the wet late autumn on muddy paths after days of rain and with a cannon in tow, well, that's a whole new experience. At times, the soldiers were up to their knees in mud. It took them all night. And by this point, local Patriot sentries had long since spotted them. Early the next morning, the troops came squelching within sight of the village of Saint-Denis. The plan was to pacify the village and then move on to the main Patriot encampment at St. Charles. But as Gore's men approached the village, they found themselves facing a well-fortified camp where insurgents occupied key positions in houses and in woods along the approaches to the town. Gore quickly realized that this was going to take some time. In Saint-Denis, the local Patriot had plenty of warning of the approach of Gore's troops. News arrived the evening before the troops were headed down from Sorel to meet them. Although Papineau was in the village, along with his trusted companion, the editor of the newspaper, The Vindicator, 
In fact, the man who took the military lead here was Wolfred Nelson. Nelson was another Anglo-Patriot. He was a doctor who had long lived in the area and had represented it in the assembly. Nelson had organized the first of the anti-Russell resolution meetings earlier that spring. And then, at the great meeting at St. Charles, he had moved the first resolution that, quote, whenever any form of government becomes destructive, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. He was one of those ordered to be arrested, but here he was, certainly not giving up, and leading the defense of the Patriot in the Richelieu Valley. All through the night, the Patriot had worked to prepare their weapons, making bullets and readying for the regular troops' arrival. Even at the darkest hours of the night, many were still awake in preparation. And so, there were plenty of people to see what was perhaps the strangest sight of all. About 3 a.m., a kalesh came racing into the village. These are the two-seater horse and buggies, the kind of thing you can now rent in big cities for romantic rides around parks. Well. In this case, a British officer named George Ware had been trying to catch up to Gore and his force. Ware had served as a messenger for General Colborne and so was forced to rush to catch up to his fellow troops. He arrived in Sorel after the troops had departed by the back roads, but no one had told him that they hadn't gone by the regular road, so he decided to hire the fast-moving Kalesh and head right up to Saint-Denis. He didn't want to miss the action. But while Gore's troops were bogged down in the mud, Ware zoomed through to the village on the main road, arriving well ahead of his comrades. Indeed, he was the first British regular to arrive, and he showed up right in the middle of the village in the middle of the night. This caused a bit of a stir, and a rowdy crowd gathered around Weir. Nelson rescued him from the rather excitable crowd and dumped him in a nearby house with the other Patriot leaders. They hadn't yet made any arrangements to deal with the prisoners and didn't know what to do with Ware. For the moment, they offered him some hospitality, but also tied him up before they planned to move him in the morning. We'll come back to poor George Weir later on. In the meantime, Nelson and others tried to convince Papineau that he should leave the village. There was no need for their political leader and symbol to be caught up in the military fight. He should instead wait on the outskirts of the town to see what would happen. If things went well, he could return. But if things turned against them, then Papineau would be safe and could still carry on the political battle. Papineau didn't know what to do, and he ended up staying in the village for quite some time before moving out to try to rally others from nearby villages to come to the aid of those at Saint-Denis. In fact, the whole question of where Papineau was over the next few days has long been a bit of a mystery and a point of controversy. One thing is clear, as the Patriot turned towards military preparations, Papineau himself increasingly took a back seat. On the morning of November 23rd, having marched all night in the mud, Gore had moved his men into three columns to approach Saint-Denis from different angles with one group to try to circle round and get at Saint-Denis from the rear. But each column got bogged down. One troop, heading over the fields, had two men quickly picked off. They were forced to take up defensive positions. Another column approached the village from the main road and set up a cannon to attack the main fortified stone house in the village. 
but the cannon was exposed and three men were shot trying to get the gun into position. Finally, one artilleryman managed to let off a shot which did terrible damage, crashing through the second story window, killing two defenders instantly. But Gore couldn't replicate the attack and was forced to move his cannon to a more defensible but less effective position. Both sides settled down into a series of sharpshooting positions. Gore's troops took some outlying buildings but couldn't move from them. The cannon kept firing but to little effect. This is how things stood for several hours. As the shooting went on, it would come down to reinforcements and ammunition. Other Patriot supporters kept arriving in the village throughout the day, bringing with them more men and especially more ammunition. This is likely the point where it would have counted if St. Charles was also under attack from Wetherall's forces. That had been the whole point of the pincer movement. But without Wetherall's men, the Patriot were free to come to the aid of their fellows at Saint-Denis. Gore's men had brought with them 60 rounds of ammunition and rations for a single day. As the day wore on and the positions became entrenched with little sign of movement, Gore needed to decide what to do. Would he risk the day on a bayonet charge to try to dislodge the Patriot from the main fortified building? It's possible that this could have turned the tide, but with tired troops and low on ammunition, Gore decided that the safest thing to do was to retreat. Even this proved difficult. As the regulars tried to maneuver the cannon in retreat, the wheels froze solid and stuck in the mud. They kept at it for hours, trying to unblock the wheels and get the gun moving. In the end, there was nothing that could be done. They left the gun behind, along with their wounded, and retreated down the river. They arrived back in Sorel the next morning on the 24th. The troops had had no rest since they set out on the afternoon of the 22nd from Montreal two days earlier. Back in Saint-Denis, the Patriot were ecstatic. Somehow, a group of local farmers, led by a country doctor, Wilfred Nelson, had forced the famous British army into retreat. They had done it. In the first battle of the rebellion of 1837, it was the Patriot who claimed victory. The deaths and the casualties were not especially high. Six of Gore's men had died and eight wounded. In Saint-Denis, the Patriot lost 12 men and seven wounded. But though the losses were slightly higher, they had held the ground and won the day. The one black spot was the fate of poor George Weir. In the morning, on the other end of the village from the shooting, Nelstead ordered three men to take Weir upriver to St. Charles where a prison had been established. But in the midst of the noise of the cannon fire, Weir had jumped from the carriage that was carrying him, not realizing that he was still tied up. One of his guards jumped off and attacked him with a sword. Others gathered round and also set at Weir with weapons. Finally, with Ware standing but wounded, trying to ward off the blows, someone finally put him out of his misery with the shot of a musket at close range. It was a messy and nasty business, and Nelson was not pleased when he learned of it. The Patriot put Ware's body in a nearby stream covered with rocks. He would be found later, and when he was, the symbol of Ware would be what the Loyalists would shout as they exacted their own revenge on the Patriot. But that was still sometime in the future. The question at this point was, what would happen next? Could the Patriot turn this early victory into something bigger, into the first of many victories leading ultimately to independence? 
a lot depended on what happened upriver. Don't forget, Lieutenant Colonel George Wetherall's troops were resting at a village up the Richelieu River, enjoying a day of rest and filling their bellies. News traveled fast, and Wetherall soon learned of Gore's defeat downriver at Saint-Denis. The question was, what would he do? Should he continue with the original plan and attack the Pathgat in St. Charles? Or should he retreat to Montreal and reconsider? Back in Montreal, when George Colborne learned of Gore's defeat, he decided for caution. He sent messengers ordering Wetherall to retreat. But the messengers never arrived. The Patriot had somehow managed to cut off communication south of Montreal. They intercepted the letters going back and forth to the troops. Wetherall was on his own. His troops were now rested and well fed. What should he do? Should he stay or should he go? The lieutenant colonel took fate into his own hands and ordered his men ready to march. Wetherall was feeling brave. He wasn't going to retreat now. The men shouldered their muskets and hitched up the cannon. They were going to face the Patriot. Thanks uh, so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this installment of 1867 and all that. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, the first round went to the Patriot, freeing the prisoners and then defeating Gore's troops at Saint-Denis. Next week, we follow George Wetherall and his troops downriver to St. Charles and the next battle in the Richelieu Valley. The Patriot had defeated one half of the pincer movement. The question was, could they do the same the next time? 1867 and All That is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Jessica Clement with the generous aid of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of All That to 1867 and All That. <laughs>